Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about forgiveness. I've been thinking about the needs and emotions that typically are intertwined with its expression or its withholding. Power, survival, fear, anger, resentment, control, love, hope, empathy, and compassion. My guest today is Dr. Richard S. Balkin. He's a professor in the Department of Leadership and Counselor Education and coordinator for Education Research and Design in the School of Education at the University of Mississippi. His new book is Practicing Forgiveness, A Path Toward Healing. Welcome, Dr. Balkin, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So uh, the first thing that got me thinking is the chosen title of your new book and, and um, practicing forgiveness. And, and I got thinking about the practicing part. Um, is forgiveness something that one practices and that one needs to or should be practicing? Does it take practice? You know, I think any behavioral change takes practice. Uh, we usually don't just wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to be a different person. Um, quantum change in our lives is a really rare thing. Um, Jeffrey Kotler and I have written about that in uh, Myths, Misconceptions, and Invalid Assumptions in uh, Counseling and Psychotherapy. And when we talked about that, we, we, we talked about how, how rare uh, a major change in our life really is. You know, how many epiphanies do we have? Uh, it's not like it's a daily occurrence. And so I think when it comes to something like practicing forgiveness, we have to develop healthy habits related to forgiveness. And that starts with how we start to think about forgiveness, conceptualize it, and maybe challenge our our own beliefs about what we think forgiveness is and what it could be. I'm thinking of even that noticing step of that it is something we need to think about and think about that it is something we have patterns and beliefs and, and habitual reactions to. And we might not have even ever considered that before. And I'm thinking about, you know, the idea that we have an epiphany. And even that, once we've had the epiphany, the change doesn't tumble out automatically. Like there's a, a space right there where a lot of work is going to have to happen to notice our habitual reactions, to stop us when they hit, then consider the narrative that's going along with that, um, and then make a conscious choice as to how we want to operate differently, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I teach doctoral students in research methods and statistics, and I'll start off my class during the semester. I'll ask them a, a question like, how many of you all have a bad habit? And usually at first, nobody raises their hand, but eventually everybody's raising their hand. And I, I give examples, you know, maybe you eat too much fast food, maybe you drink too much soda, maybe you don't do your 30 minutes of cardiovascular exercise that you're supposed to do. Whatever that might be, we all have bad habits. And then I mentioned the fact that you all are doctoral students. You're gonna be the top 2% of the most educated people in the country. And here you're telling me that you have bad habits, that you're aware of them, and that you haven't changed them. And so mere awareness, mere education of whatever our bad habits might be, 
that doesn't create change. That doesn't create an internalized process of moving us forward. You know, at some point in time, what is going on in our lives and what we want to change has to become internally motivated. We got to really want to deal with the discomfort that we're experiencing and make a, a new path or a new direction. And we've got to look at those two sides of that coin, right? Like the why, the how is this serving us? Because anything we're doing at some point, it was serving us, it was supplying some need or, or satisfying some want. And so we've got to look at that. And then that that be willing to sit in that discomfort space of when we're changing to the new thing, right? Because that you talk a lot about that in the book, that this space of the known is very safe. And, uh, and so much of our personality wants to hold on to that. I mean, everyone always blames the poor ego, but the ego, you know, it wants to hold on to what we know, um, because somehow that feels like at least we're surviving. It feels safer than than the unknown. I, I give a basic example where I talk about you sit in a chair or on a sofa and you shift. And why do you shift? You shift to get more comfortable. Right there, we are creating a change due to discomfort. And I really, you know, believe that 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 we're going to move, we're going to change when we become uncomfortable enough where we are currently. And uh, I, I do. I, I think I think we have to learn to deal with discomfort. And one way we deal with that is 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 through shifting, through changing. Mm-hmm. And not just push through it, right? Not because that's that's been so much of the psychology, I think, in the last few decades. Like, okay, just push through the discomfort or just keep doing what you're doing while you're suffering the discomfort, you know, that that's somehow courage and strength. And, and um, I think there's a misconception there that, that often holds us back. Well, when you take something like forgiveness, you know, you know this. I, I think this misconception uh, comes from this idea that we all think we know what forgiveness is, and we associate it with this, what I refer to as an interpersonal process, that somebody has caused harm or committed some type of transgression, and we we go to that person and we renegotiate that relationship with that person uh, and, and, and bring up bring apart some type of of healing in that relationship. But sometimes forgiveness isn't that way. And and, and, and I, I work really hard to bring in this idea that sometimes forgiveness isn't an interpersonal process, but rather it's an intrapersonal journey. It's within oneself. You're not going to renegotiate a relationship with everyone who has committed a transgression or harmed you in some way. Sometimes you're going to have to go it alone. Uh, the person is not remorseful. Um, but you don't want to wake up in the morning brooding about your anger and discontent with this person or the harm this person has caused. At some point in time, you want to get away from these feelings of ill will. Uh, I, one example I like to give is, why don't you just wake up in the morning and brood for 20 minutes about what people have done to you that you don't like. And, you know, people, you, you make that suggestion, be like, why would I want to do that? <laughs> I don't know. I think a lot of people do that. <laughs> yeah, Maybe not yeah. just in the morning, they do it throughout their day, right? Because there's some kind of power in that victimhood that they've they've adapted to. Right, right. That powerlessness. You start your day waking up angry every morning? <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. What are some of the external factors when you make the distinction between the internal, <clears throat> the ex- internal and the, the external kind of forgiveness there? <clears throat> what are the external factors, some of them that influence our decision, whether we are even going to attempt to forgive? That, that maybe even have become internalized, like culture and things. But wh- how, how do you distinguish about those, the, the external forces that may be having an impact on our decision that we might not be aware of? Yeah, well, I, I think one is, is what is the relationship or, uh, um, or, or, or what is the benefit of, of reconciliation? Um, is going back to this relationship really going to be beneficial? Um, and then if it is beneficial, does the person who committed the transgression, the offense, is that person remorseful? Has, has that person changed? And that's something we have no control over, by the way. We can, we can want to heal relationship. We can want to make, uh, make something right. But if the other person who's caused the harm hasn't changed and isn't remorseful, you know, we could be putting ourselves back into a very dangerous and unhealthy situation. So, you know, if the person is not remorseful, if they haven't changed, that's a that's a pretty good sign that that I'm going to have to choose or be forced into an intrapersonal uh, process or an intrapersonal journey of being able to recognize that what I want from this person I'm not going to get, and I need to accept that. So on that with that situation, what are some of the internal things that that keep the person in that relationship? You know, where they're they're thinking either you mentioned that maybe they feel like they can save the person or that the person that somehow like it's their fault or they have some some shame or guilt or like that they can't get away. So they have to maybe forgive to survive and remain there. You know, I, I think uh, in, in my book, I present this model, um, this forgiveness reconciliation model. And I, I talk about how it's important that we explore our feelings about, you know, what is forgiveness and uh, what then what is the benefit of of renegotiating this relationship? And I think a lot of our our decisions stem from 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 those first two phases, those those first two stages, where if I only look at forgiveness through a lens of interpersonal forgiveness and reconciliation, I, I really limited myself. And there's some people that forgiveness then becomes impossible. And what do I do with that hurt? So you know, going back to that 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 internal process, um, it really starts with: Are we willing to expand our definition of forgiveness to include being able to go it alone, being able to recognize that if this person is not healthy for me, if this relationship is not healthy for me, um, am I going to be able to? go through maybe a grief process where I recognize that this is over. I'm not going to get what I wanted from this relationship. And I can learn to be okay with that. There'll be that absence, you know, but, you know, we, we can heal from that as we do with any 
uh, grief and loss. How is having a model beneficial? You know, I first started reading the book and I was like, oh, he's got a model. Oh, <laughs> my eyes a bit. Like, do we need a model? How does a model help? And then right now I'm like, oh, yeah, we really need a model and a model really helps. So what was your intention around that, that, that the, the purposefulness of having this model? I thought that forgiveness, when, when, when I was reading, so I, when, when I was reading Enright's work, um, Robert Enright's work uh, on forgiveness, he introduced this idea to me of interpersonal versus intrapersonal forgiveness. And I thought, we, we don't talk much about that. And it really stemmed from a client I saw uh, back in the late 90s um, who was, uh, she was sexually abused by her father. And the father was denying the allegations. And she became suicidal because her mom was questioning the validity of her disclosure. And I am doing the first family session after this girl threatened suicide and was admitted to an adolescent uh, psychiatric hospitalization program because uh, she was a danger to self. And I bring her into the session after I met with mom and I'm like, you know, what what your daughter really needs right now is support. And mom was nodding and seemed to understand. And I bring the daughter in and um, when this family conference room and there's a sofa and two chairs um, and usually uh, the parent and kid might sit on the sofa together, but they didn't. The daughter went to the sofa. The mom went to the chair next to mine. And I'm like, oh, that's that that that's different. And the first words out of the mom's mouth was, you know, as a Christian, you have to forgive him. And I got to tell you, I I didn't even think about what I was going to say to that. I didn't pause. I just immediately went into, wouldn't that be convenient for you? And uh, uh, that that statement really uh, set forth a a process of... uh, that mom wasn't going to like me very much. Uh, I, <laughs> I think that's okay in that situation, right? Like yeah. sometimes, like that's the end goal. So why not start there? That's the truth. That was the truth. That Let's was start the, with the truth. You know, you know, I didn't say, "Wow, this must be really hard for you to choose between your daughter's disclosure and your husband's denial." Um, I didn't say that. I said, "Wouldn't that be convenient for you?" Yeah. Bam, we're there. We're in it. Um, you know, um, and uh, um, I, w- one of my uh, colleagues uh, wrote to me when she when she read that and said that was gangster. Um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then now you say the other response. I can't understand that. Yes, that may have been a little yeah. more constructive, but maybe not when a situation has gone that far. I'm sure your heart broke when the mother sat in the chair. Yeah. Well, and not not now 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 my client knows she has mm-hmm. an app. Mm-hmm. And so um, things didn't go very well after that. And, uh, you know, but it, it, that, that comment of, you know, as a Christian, you have to forgive him. Um, it really bothered me. Uh, number one, I'm not Christian. I'm Jewish. So I really don't know uh, if that's true or not. Um, but I'd heard anecdotes of turn the other cheek. And I wondered if that was true. And it wasn't for maybe five years later um, 
I'm going to Yom Kippur services, the Jewish Day of Atonement, and I'm in the study group in between the morning service and the afternoon service because you fast on this holiday, and who wants to go home and stare at the refrigerator when you're fasting? So I'm in a study group at the synagogue, and they introduced this Jewish conceptualization of forgiveness, and there were three types of forgiveness in Judaism, and one was called kapara, which is spiritual forgiveness, the forgiveness that only God can give. And then there was silicha, and silicha referred to this restitutional forgiveness. Um, I borrow your lawnmower, I break your lawnmower, I repair your lawnmower, we're good. And then there was this concept called mechila, and it translates to the forgiveness of debt. And I thought, well, that's stereotypical, <laughs> you know, that, that, that this is all about debt. Um, but uh, then, it, you know, it, it really brought home this idea of how there are certain debts that you can't make restitution on. Neglect, abuse, slander. Once it's out there, once it's happened, you can't take it back. And that's when I went, oh, this client, that's the forgiveness that we don't talk about. It wasn't that you have to sweep this under the rug and forgive your dad. The journey that my client needs to take is that there isn't going to be a reconciliation with their dad, which is what her mother wanted. She wanted this to all go away. What there was going to be was this intrapersonal healing where she recognizes that what she wants from her dad and even the support and love that she wanted from her mom, she's not going to get. And she's going to have to eventually go, I don't hold you accountable for this debt anymore. What I want from you, I no longer expect from you. And we're going to move on. I'm not going to be angry with you anymore, but I also am not going to be obligated to have a relationship with you either. We're done, but I'm not angry and I'm not depressed and I'm not sad. And the control that you had over me, you no longer have. And I thought how empowering that part of forgiveness is. And so when I talk about interpersonal forgiveness, it's that journey. It's that ability to you know, we, we often talk about, you know, to let it go, but that's, that's not something that happens over a good night's sleep. Uh, that takes a lot of work. You, you talk about in the book forgiveness and you're, you're talking about it now being situation specific and the relationship, I think, to personal power varies depending on the particular situation. Um, and in some situation, we make ourselves vulnerable by forgiving and in other situations, we might make ourselves vulnerable by not forgiving. Um, you know, if we're staying in the status quo, um, not forgiving could be a power move, right? We, we might hold some, some weight over the other person. Um, you talk about a situation where a couple is, has been, there's been infidelity in the marriage. So in that situation, there could be some power in not forgiving. Um, and there can also be power in, in forgiving as a situation to describe. How is it best to sort of, um, analyze the relationship to power in your particular situation when you're starting to think about forgiveness? Wow, that, that's a great question. Um, I, first of all, 
I, I think that um, power isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, sometimes I want to be angry. That's okay. I, I, I think I talk about how uh, anger gets a bad rap sometimes. And there is power in being angry. Um, when I'm angry or I'm exerting this power, um, and if I can come to the terms, and one, one of the questions is, is the power that I'm exerting unfair? You know, you think about um, when a parent gets angry with a child um, and exerts influence or power in that relationship. That's not necessarily unfair. Sometimes as a parent, we have to do that. Um, but in a relationship that, you know, where, you know, you, you, you want mutuality, and um, you know some type of 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 freedom and equality within the relationship. Um, if that power differential is unhealthy, then you might have to ask yourself, what what am I holding on to this for? And I would argue that a good question to ask yourself isn't why do I need this power or why am I so angry? Might be what am I afraid of? that usually our, our power and our anger is tied to fear. Um, I'm fearful of letting my guard down. I'm fearful of trusting this person. Uh, I'm fearful of being vulnerable again. These are all uh, reasons why, why we are defensive, why we bring these defense mechanisms into play. Um, why we exert our power unfairly. Usually it's, it's, it's protective. And if it is protective, um, why do I need to be protective of myself? And, you know, if it's, you know, to avoid harm, well, hey, maybe I don't need to be in this relationship. Is it because I've been hurt and I don't want to hurt again? Then you have to decide, you know, risk and benefit. You know, is it worth taking the risk to get involved in this relationship. I think you made a really important distinction as far as thinking about power and, and, and our feelings of experience and exerting it over someone else, wielding our power, um, is different than experiencing our a sense of personal power, right? That gives us a sense of choice and our ability to make decisions and to act uh, in our own best interests. And that that's, that's different than um, our choosing to exert power over someone else. And they're both super important to be aware of when we're in a situation as to whether or not we decide whether we want to forgive someone. Yeah, yeah, um, I think so. Um it's, uh, I think it boils down to um, our, our willingness to, to see the relationship as safe, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, and how much risk there, there is involved. Um, yeah. you know, is the person truly remorseful? Is the person truly demonstrated change? And if they haven't, um, 
why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and let's talk about some of those elements as we go on the contrition and the the pieces that have to be there for true true forgiveness to happen. Um, but before that, what can be the emotional toll of not forgiving? Because you talk about a number of studies that uh, look at the health of for, of mental health of someone um, when they do forgive and and the emotional toll of of maybe not forgiving. What does that look like? Well, you know, as I said earlier, you know, wouldn't it be great to just wake up and be angry in the morning? And, uh, you know, the answer is usually no. Um, uh, you know, obviously, um, carrying around feelings of anger, hurt, trauma, depression, betrayal, uh, takes both an emotional and physical toll. Uh, it affects the way that we interact in relationships that are important to us. Uh, it affects the energy that we have within ourselves, and I believe the energy that we exude toward others. And so, uh, um, you know, not you know, you know, carrying a weight with you is just that. It's carrying a weight with you, and 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 I think we can all um, think of people that we know in our lives who maybe have experienced some type of trauma and haven't been able to move forward. And we see the toll that it takes on that person. Uh, We might see it behaviorally. um, We might see it through addiction. We might see it uh, through through failed relationships. Um, You know, we might see it through this, through this dysfunction of, of uh, passive aggressive behavior. Uh, you know, um, or, you know, people who go to extremes and, you know, to, to get what they want and just can't seem to uh, relate well to others. I think, uh, uh, I think that's, that's the danger. I think it highlights again the importance of the distinction between interpersonal and interpersonal forgiveness and the the focus on that and the focus on um, decisional forgiveness and emotional forgiveness because we look at Sophie's situation and, and you mentioned again another study that sort of focusing on the the alternative results of being forced to forgive or pressured to forgive when some doesn't someone isn't in the place to do it and 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 doesn't want to that there's an emotional toll and a mental health toll there as well that stress level rise that I'm going to ha- you know being forced to forgive someone I'm really not have not forgiven and is not in my best interest to forgive um what is the distinction between decisional forgiveness and emotional forgiveness yeah you know Sometimes we are cognitively where we need to be, but emotionally not. You know, um, cognitively, I know I need to move on. Emotionally, I have not. And uh, um, I think a really poignant example um, might be uh, what we witnessed um after uh, uh, the the Dylan Roof murders in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, remember, uh, Dylan Roof goes into a church and uh, murders uh, nine people in the church. Uh, he's white. Uh, all the victims were African-American. And he's arrested. And there's a hearing. And Dylan Roof is on video, and family members, uh, the victims he murdered, 
are in court and talking to the judge and the judge gives them a chance to say whatever they want to say and each individual um, is basically speaking to Dylan Roof and, and you're hearing comments of I forgive you because I have to forgive you and may God have mercy on your soul. And, and I, I think about that. I, I think about those words and about what's being conveyed um, and the, the hurt and the trauma and the anger they must feel. And yet there's this decision to look at Dylan Roof and, and not say, I hope you get what's coming to you. No. May God have mercy on your soul. Time after time uh, is what was said. And so um, that's a decision. Um, but I wouldn't equate that decision with the idea that the person who's, who's conveying that has simply moved on, is no longer feeling hurt, is no longer feeling the unfairness and the unjustness of what's transpired. Um, and, and so sometimes even when we convey what we think we need to convey, um, we don't necessarily feel congruent with what's being said. Um, and, you know, and, and so I think that that uh, very similarly to um, what we teach children, you know, uh, you, maybe you've witnessed a, a young child get angry at mom or dad and slap mom and dad, and the kid gets scolded. You don't do that. You don't hit mommy or you don't hit daddy, and the kid's crying now, and we, you know, then say, you know, what do you have to say? And the kid's, you know, crying and says, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, but has there been a behavioral change? Is there truly remorse or is it a response to being punished? This is part of how forgiveness has been socialized, but not necessarily tied to a congruent emotional state. Well, and it's a complex space, right? Yeah. Um, you know, even in that example with the child, that anger, are they then being told like, okay, the hitting's the wrong part, but it's okay to be angry. Like, here's another way to express your anger, or it's not okay to be angry. And now you've you've got shame or guilt. So then the reaction in, in, internally is, you know, I've got to hide my emotions. I can't express them. And now I've got to say something that isn't true out of guilt and shame. Um, and, and because I'm so feared, now I'll be rejected and not loved and maybe abandoned and I'll die um, because they'll throw me out of the herd. So I've got to say this thing that is not, you know, congruous with my actual feeling right now. I do hate you, or I am really angry, and I do want to hit you. And so it gets really um, mixed up. So what do we do with that? How do we unthread those tangles? Well, you know, I, first of all, let's just understand that a lot of what we believe about forgiveness, and I've given two very different type of, types of example, but they both tie into culture, they tie into religion, 
They tie into our beliefs that we have been taught about forgiveness. And, um, well, decisional forgiveness can be healthy in the idea that we, uh, it's sometimes a recognition of where we need to go. You know, it's aspirational. Um, I do have a, a, a rather subtle play on words in, uh, in the book where I say, uh, you know, premature reconciliation can cause blindness. Um, and, and what I'm referring to, you know, to there is that, you know, if we try to heal our relationships before we're ready, we're going to end up hurt again. You know, we're going to end up hurt again because either A, uh, we knew that this wasn't a healthy place to be, or B, I initiated something I wasn't ready to do. You know, um, and and so uh, what do we have to do? We have to put other people's expectations aside of what they think we should do and be in touch with the idea of what would be healthy for me in this situation? Um, and healthy for me in this situation is, is maybe I'm not ready to not be angry yet. Um, maybe I need to feel this a little bit more. Uh, that's okay. Um, you know, if six years from now you're still in the same place, eh, probably not okay. But right now when it's fresh, when it's raw, perhaps you are where you need to be. Let's talk a little bit about uh, an alternative route where the objective is reconciliation. And you say in the book, in addition to forgiveness being linked to well-being, happiness, and improved mental health, forgiveness may be viewed as an essential component to intervening in the cycles of violence, counterviolence, and conflict within societies by promoting healing and reconciliation between groups, cultures, and societies. Um, how do you suggest we utilize your model to promote closing the cultural divide in our country? I, I read an email um, recently, or I guess it was a Facebook post, um, from someone who is um, always holding themselves out in the last four years as being a, a social justice focus and and um, their reaction to the riots in the Capitol were very much the opposite. It was very much, you know, every single person should be arrested and prosecuted to the extent of the law and wrought in Guantanamo for 20 years. And, and, and that would be justice. And I thought, okay, you know, where we can be incensed and also remain um, just, uh, I think, and that has to happen for reconciliation. So where, where on your model do we focus to be able to start down the path of, of reconciliation for the divide that we're experiencing now as a society? So, so let's understand that when we renegotiate a relationship and we pursue reconciliation, um, we're saying that there is a relationship that is present. And I think a big part of that is to recognize what are my relationships that are authentic and real? For instance, social media is not where my authentic, real relationships lie. Okay, you know, we argue with people we don't even know. And they say things to us that they would never say to our face, right? And sitting down and having 
a political conversation with uh, a friend whose kid is sitting on your lap is a lot different than arguing over Facebook. And so, you know, I, I would say that, first of all, you focus on reconciliation with your authentic relationships, you know, and, you know, the person who said all those people marching should all be arrested. You know what? They don't know a single one of those people. I, I give an example where I say, you know, your son or daughter brings home a friend and the friend steals $20 out of your wallet. And you look at your son and daughter and you go, that person is not allowed in our house again. Same situation, but this time it's your nephew or niece that stole $20 out of your wallet. And now you go, we need to have a talk. We have to have a conversation. We have to make this right. It's the same offense, but the context has changed. This is family. You know this person. You love this person. All right. And so even though the, the offense is the same, the context of it has changed. And your reaction and response and willingness to forgive and reconcile the relationship is very different, even though the offense is the same. And so as we are talking about political discourse and people you don't know are saying very hurtful things to you, of course you're dismissive. You don't care about those relationships. They don't hold weight and meaning to you. But have those relations, you know, have those conversations with people you care about, with people you've been friends with over decades. And it's a little different, isn't it? How much in that scenario do you think the why matters of the offender, not only who they are and how well we know them and how they fit in our lives or don't fit in our lives, but understanding the why of their actions? Yeah. Um, this is just me personally. Um, I don't get too caught up in why. Um, because sometimes, even when I know why, it's not good enough. Um, years ago, I was working with an adolescent who uh, had been sexually abused by her father, and she was suicidal, and um, she was addicted to crystal methamphetamine. She'd been doing IV drug use. And uh, when I was asking her about her, her suicide attempt, she said, you know, for the past year, I've been living with my dad. He got me hooked on crystal meth, and then he raped me, and this has been going on for a year, and I want to die. And I'm thinking to myself, on a scale of 1 to 10, that's a 10. That's just horrible. That's unbelievable. And then I start thinking about this. And I go, is that right? Should, should, she, should she want it to die? I mean, I understand where she's at, but at the same time, that's not the outcome I'm looking for. As a matter of fact, I believe that as horrible as this trauma is, she can recover, that she can live a productive life, that she can be a healthy adult. I, I truly believe that. And if anybody should die, it's not her. And so as I'm thinking about this, I realize that knowing why she's at this point 
isn't acceptable. I don't accept that. I guess I'm talking about the why of the father in that case, or the why of the person that um, hit you in your bike accident. Like the relationship to uh, understanding the whys of the offender, why they did what they did, if that has a relationship to compassion and empathy, and if that has a place, even if it's not enough, as I would think in this case, it wouldn't be enough for one to want to continue the relationship with the father. So interpersonal reconciliation is out. But is it valuable at all to consider those elements if we're thinking of um, of, of thinking that we want to be able to at some point move beyond the anger and the resentment and the fear and all of that. So just to have internal reconciliation, like is the the why and, and an ability to have compassion or empathy for the offender, is that critical or is it not? Um, I would say maybe. <laughs> and, and, you know, um, knowing why might make you more empathic towards the offender but it doesn't necessarily excuse the offender. Right. You know, and, you know, at the end of the day, you know why the offender may be this way, but but do you go, so what he did to me or she did to me was okay? Of course Hopefully not. not. <laughs> right, right. And so, you know, the, 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 the basic question still is going to be, is this person safe for me to be around? Is this a relationship I can reconcile? Or do I need to, you know, choose Mechila? Do I need to, you know, you know, say what I want from this person I'm never going to get? I'm not going to be angry, but we're done. You know, and, and I think, you know, you know it, it, it will still boil down to, regardless of why, it will still boil down to, am I safe? Am I okay? Is this healthy? And, and it seems the most important element of the model that it puts the focus on the aspects that an individual can control. You can't control contrition. Contrition might not resolve the problem anyway. And so what you can focus on is, is the catharsis um, aspect individually for, that forgiveness may bring and, and, a, and an elevated personal power. Yeah. You know, I mean, some relationships you can heal and they'll be stronger. Some relationships you may not have the opportunity to heal. You you talk about maybe this will be our our last topic. You talk about um, uh, the principle of least interest, and you say that often a, the person with the least interest in the relationship often controls the outcome. Um, and that was uh, Willard Waller in, in 1938. Um, how does that play a role in our um, decision about forgiveness? Yeah, yeah, beautiful question. Um, yeah, the principle of least interest is, is is that the person who's the least interested has the power in the relationship, and I, and I think that's true. That um, uh, you know, who who wants to re- heal this relationship is is that balanced, or is it more one person over another? And you know, you know, who's pursuing that? Um, very often in 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 the cycle of abuse um the offender you know the, the the person who has caused the abuse will will plead oh don't leave me please forgive me i'll change i'll do better 
and the the victim is tricked into thinking that they have the power and control all of a sudden. But as soon as they say, yes, you know, um, I'll give you another chance, the tables turn. You know, and, uh, um, you know, it's, you know, the victim, you know, it's the offender that is like, I can do whatever I want. And the victim is, oh, please don't, please don't, please don't. Um, and so we see this switch, this role reversal all of a sudden. And so, um, you, you know, uh, the power in the relationship is who wants the relationship the most. And the person who wants the relationship the most usually has less power in that case. Um, you know, what we're looking for is mutuality, you know, um, you know, equality uh, uh, within the relationship. And uh, when we uh, when we don't see that, when we don't have that, um, uh, it can create a very unhealthy dynamic and a lot of risk. And maybe the, the path towards that and then the path toward healing is the knowledge that each individual has control over whether or not they, they choose to forgive and in, and in what way they forgive. You know, we, we do. We do. And I, I, I think, you know, just to, you know, you know, to put back out there, um, if we are only locked into thinking about forgiveness from an interpersonal lens, you know, from a renegotiated relationship, um, we weaken our ability to heal. You know, if my only way forward is to fix this relationship with this person who's really mistreated me, um, then I might be setting myself up for more mistreatment. I think when we say, you know what, I forgive you, that doesn't mean I want to be with you. That doesn't mean I want to be around you. Um, but I do forgive you. You know, to have that as an option, that's powerful. And maybe add on to that, and I forgive myself, right? I forgive myself for not taking my care of myself better than maybe I, I had, and, and, and now I'm going to do that, right? Empowering in all levels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, we don't talk, I, I don't talk a lot about self-forgiveness. I'm focused more on the, uh, on the relational components, but that's certainly part of it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking, Dr. Dr. Richard Balkin and his book, Practicing Forgiveness, A Path Toward Healing. It's so great well, thank, to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I so appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to be on your podcast. Absolutely. And, uh, okay. Right. Thanks. Bad. Okay, bye-bye.